0: Will you pray with me, please? And so, Jesus, we come, and in these next few minutes, as we look at your word and try to discern what it means for each and every one of us, we pray that you would remove all the distractions that try to crowd our mind, that all the things that try to put calluses on our hearts will be gone and that only your holy spirit would speak to us through the power of your word it's in your perfect name that we pray amen so it was following easter that we decided to um, to move to the book of james as a way of um, answering the question so what you know the resurrection of jesus took place he defeated death and I know that that guarantees that we'll have eternal life, but what does it mean for us right now? What does it mean for us every single day? It doesn't really make any difference in our practical experiences. And no one speaks more practically about how we live every day than the letter that James wrote to the general church. And last week we looked at the first eight verses of that letter, and um, this week we're going to move on to verses 12 through 18. So let's listen to what James has to say. of all that he has created. So, so in those first eight verses, last week we looked at this idea um, that is unique to Christians about how we deal with suffering and about the need for us to persevere. And as we persevere, our faith will be built and we'll be able to learn how to be more mature, which is a general theme, right, of uh, this whole book of James. The whole general theme is maturity, growing to be more and more like Christ as an individual's and as a community of people together. In this second section of the first chapter, James moves on to something that's a little more difficult for us. And that is the whole assessment of our desires, of our temptations, of our motivations. Do we ever spend any time thinking about why we do what we do and what might be motivating us? And we can be led down a very dark path if we don't spend any time doing that. Now some of you may know the name Edgar Prince. Um, He's an entrepreneur and founder of a a very successful business in Holland, Michigan, the Prince Corporation, and um, built that business into a multi-million dollar business. They sold it to Johnson Controls. Um, Ed Prince was a great guy. He was a very devout Christian. Uh, He served on not only a lot of uh, philanthropic and anti, um, I mean, nonprofit boards, but he also was a great um, supporter of Calvin College and Hope College, and really the town of Holland exists today in the way it exists today and is as beautiful as it is today down Main Street because of the Prince family, because of Ed and his entire family. Ed um, passed away very suddenly in the elevator of his business one day, um, and by his side were a couple of his key colleagues, one of whom was Bob Hoveman. Bob Haviman was um, an early employee of Prince Corporation. He knew Ed as he was growing up. They were both members of the same church. They were friends, they did things together. And anything that the princes were involved in, Bob Haviman was involved in. And usually he was the treasurer or uh, somehow involved in the finances of it because that was his area of expertise. And after Ed passed away, Bob continued in that role, um, even with the Prince Foundation and uh, Elsa Prince, um, Ed's uh, wife, uh, in the trust that she had and all the things that she did philanthropically, Bob was always involved. Earlier this year, Bob Haverman pled guilty to embezzling 16 million dollars from the Prince Family Trust. And you got to ask yourself the question, why? Where does that come from? The guy had plenty of money, he made plenty of money. They were friends with the princes their whole life. He was was a Christian, a devout Christian who was involved in not only serving churches but starting churches, involved in deep ministries. And yet, he embezzled $16 million. I mean, my other question is, how can you not miss $16 million for 15 years? But how does this happen? Well, James says that Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I mean, I don't think Bob Hoffman woke up one day and said, You know, I don't have much on my schedule today. I think I'll start embezzling money from the princes. I don't think that's what happened. Somehow he had some desire in his heart. Don't know what it is. Have to ask him. Could have been to create a better image for himself. It could have been to have just a little bit more money. It could have been to support causes that he couldn't support just on his own. I have no idea what those desires were. But the temptation was there to have more money. And apparently he had access to it. And that led to the behavior, right? The behavior, the sinful behavior, which was to figure out a way to steal the money. And so he pled guilty to it. And now he's going to serve. 20 years in jail, which is a kind of death, right? So James is right. Your desires are married with temptation, then temptation leads to behavior, and the behavior that you engage in leads to some kind of death. The death of a career, the death of your family, the death of friendships, the death of an image. Whatever he had to suffer from, he has suffered lots of kinds of deaths. And unfortunately, it's something that we all succumb to. Maybe not in quite sensational or public ways, but nonetheless, we all fall. I mean, we're familiar with the story in the Old Testament of David, right? King David, most powerful man in the world at the time, sent all of his armies off to war one day, and, you know, he didn't sleep well at night, and so he went up on top of his roof to get some fresh air, and lo and behold, the neighbor woman is up taking a bath on her roof. And, uh, just so happens the neighbor is someone who serves as one of the leaders of david's army and he glances over and david has desires we could even say they're natural desires and he's tempted to act on those desires and bathsheba just happened to be drop-dead gorgeous and so he sends his servant over to send for bathsheba and she comes to his house now one of the things that's often missed in the story because david takes all the blame is that in some ways bathsheba is complicit right She didn't say, no, I'm not going, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be a part of it. She went. And they engaged in a sexual relationship that night, and Bathsheba became pregnant. And that's when people started to die. The first person to die was Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. David had to think of some cover-up scheme so that no one would think less of him and maintain his image with everybody else. And so he put Uriah on the front line so that he would die. And then there's all sorts of death in David's life, you know? He just has a horrible, dysfunctional family that's filled with conflict from that time on, one after another after another. You see, it's a desire that leads to a temptation, that leads to an action, that leads to a death. Our desires can get the best of us. And we've all inherited this self-serving gene. Which is really what sin is, right? It's just self serving. I want to do, basically, it's I want to do things my way and not God's way. It, it just boils down to that. It starts in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, absolutely perfect deal, didn't need to do anything else. They had everything they wanted, but perfect wasn't good enough for them. They had something a little bit more that they wanted. And so they acted on it. And this self serving gene they passed on to the rest of their relatives, to all of us. In reform circles, we like to say, well, we don't like to say, but we are forced to say that we're totally depraved. We are totally depraved, which does not mean what a lot of people think it means because, you know, in reform circles, we speak code language. Totally depraved does not mean we're as bad as we could be, but it does mean that everything we think, do, and say somehow is tainted with sin. And one of our teaching instruments, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, in uh, question and answer seven says, question seven is, Where does this corrupt human nature come from? And the answer is, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. And then this, I just love this language. This fall so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners. Corrupt from conception on. Everything, every thought, every idea, every desire is somehow tainted with a little bit of this poison and even our best intentions can deceive us things that appear to be selfless and helpful and sacrificial are always tainted with a little bit of this poison of self-interest so let's uh... let's draw a hypothetical let's say that uh, becky and i are at home and uh... the phone rings and it's the development director of a seminary and they say you know we'd like to build this building on our campus and uh... we want this building on our campus i knew it was there Uh, We'd like to build this building on our campus, and we'd love to have you contribute. In fact, uh, would you be willing to contribute a million dollars? And I go, well, I really didn't get a raise, maybe 900000 but not a million. I'm not going to be able to, you know, do all of that. But if you can contribute a million dollars, that would really help. And just think you'd help seminary education, you'd build up this. This would be great in perpetuity. It'd be wonderful. If you could do that, that'd be great. And if you could give $1.5 million, you could have a naming opportunity. You know, we'd name the building after you. This is the way development works on college campuses, right? You can't go anywhere without having a building named after somebody. Somebody put up enough money, right? But there's no such thing as pure altruism. So I didn't want to do it, but Becky said yes, and so we got the naming opportunity. And this will go up at the seminary sometime <laughs> soon. Hey, for 1.5 million dollars, you get to call it whatever you want. So gifts are nice, right? They're going to help other people. It's altruistic, but nothing's purely altruistic. I mean, you know, we engage in this glimmers of hope thing at Christmas time, and we, um, you know, buy things off the trees and we donate to people around the world, and you know, we we um, support the prisoners in Angola and we get them socks and toiletries, whatever they need, and you know, it's very it's very altruistic. We, we just want to give to other people. We want to, It's great for us to give to other people. But if we're really honest and you kind of scrape below the surface, you know, we're kind of proud that our church has that relationship with Angola, aren't we? I mean, isn't it great that Elmer's Church can be known as the church that supports this prisoner ministry year after year after year? There's just a little bit of pride that goes in that, which means that nothing is really purely altruistic. Our desires can be hidden. I mean, the desire to maintain a certain image with our friends and family can be deadly. I mean, I've had men who've shown up in my office to tell me that they've lost their job, but don't tell my family. They get up every morning, they shower, they shave, they put on their suit and tie, they take their briefcase, and they take the train downtown. As if they're going to work every day. Because they don't want their family to know that they lost their job. Because they have a certain image to maintain with their family and their friends. And it would be embarrassing. It would ruin their image if anybody knew they had lost their job. This I'm not making up. This happens. And part of it is because we as men are so identified with what we do. And if we lose what we do, we lose who we are. And we don't want anybody to know. But if you don't find another job right away, you can't come home and say, Hey, honey, I got this new job offer. And they never know that you lost your job because you're living off a severance. (laughs) But if you don't get another job, eventually... You're going to die a death. And the death is not just the embarrassment of losing your image. But now your family can't trust you in what you say. And so there's a whole nother death. Some people love to be helpers, right? We like to help other people, come alongside other people. We love to be known as helpers. But with everybody who's a helper, there's a little bit of a codependent relationship. We kind of like to be known as people who can help. It kind of builds up our image. And we like to be those who are helpers. Some of us to maintain our image with our family, our friends and our colleagues, you know, take vacations we can't afford or buy cars that are way too expensive or give things to our children that they really shouldn't have or go out for dinners that aren't part of it. be all to maintain an image and a lifestyle and eventually it comes back to kind of kill us because that's how you get buried with debt that you can't get out from underneath. Pleasing ourselves is a poison that taints everything that we do. Now James reminds us that rarely do we fix blame on ourselves or our desires for the consequences of acting the way we do. I mean, we have become experts at pointing our fingers at other people and other situations and circumstances, and I think the insurance industry is the cause of that problem. So um, if we had a flood today – we probably shouldn't joke about floods here at Elmer Church. Let's take something else. (laughs) If there was a hurricane or if there was a tornado, right? or if there was an earthquake, what would the insurance company call it? An act of God. God gets blamed for everything. James is right. God gets blamed for everything. And we grab right onto that. We're right behind the insurance industry in saying that, that a lot of the tragedies and difficulties and problems I have in life, it must be an act of God. This is the way God works. This is how God does things. It's all God's fault. I was in my office one day, and the phone rang. It was a students from a local high school, and he was saying, could you come over because you're part of our crisis team, and there's been a tragedy, and we need you to come over and help process it with the kids. So I went over, and he explained to me what had happened. It was um, one of those early June days where the temperature was 75 degrees. It was the last week. Remember when kids went to school in June? Yeah, this was way back then. And um, it was exam week. They'd finished their exams, you know. They're all excited. It's just great. Wow, woo, we're done with our exams. You know, 75 degrees outside. So the kid, kid's all pile in this kid's car. He's has got a convertible. The music is going. He's driving down the street. There's no drinking or anything about it. It's just pure, you know, celebration. And isn't that great? And what do a couple of kids do? Well, if you got a convertible, you're going to jump kind of on the trunk, you know, where the prom people sit and the parade people all sit and wave and hoot and holler. Well, sure enough, they hit a bump when they are going too fast. Two kids fell off the back of the car and one of them died. So now I have to walk in the room and help process this with some of the kids, and there's all sorts of emotions going on. And one of the girls, through sobs that she can hardly control, says to me, Why did God do this, Rev? Why did God do this? And that's not just a teenage question. I mean, we ask it in different ways. Sometimes we like to formalize it by saying, well, why did God allow this to happen? But in essence, we're really blaming God. And that's what John says. James says. We, we tend to blame God for perils and problems. Why did God do this? If God is sovereign and God has control of all things, why did God do this? Some of us are creative in assigning blame to God. We can put a positive spin on it. Uh, we had friends when we were younger who were kind of in our age group. They are in our ministry that we ran together with young couples. Um, he was a very successful salesman and she was a professor at Wheaton College great young family, involved in young life, doing all sorts of great things. And one day he called me and he said, "Uh, can we talk? And so he came over and he looked horrible. He looked completely shaken, you know, completely ashen and white. And he said, uh, after a little while, what he could choke out is, I just found out that my wife was having an affair with somebody else. And I couldn't believe what happened. He couldn't believe what happened. But I'd only heard it from him, and so you always need to hear the other side of the story. So I called his wife, and she agreed to see me, and we met together. And we talked for a long time about how she got into this situation. And it it wasn't a new formula. It was desire that led to temptation, that led to behavior. And then she looked me straight in the eye, a professor from Wheaton College, and said, Jesus wants us to be happy, and this makes me happy. So... Even a positive spin on this is God's fault. I'm not taking responsibility for this. Jesus wants me to be happy, and this makes me happy. And then the deaths began, right? The death of two families, the death of two marriages, the death of two careers. Apparently, they don't let you work at Wheaton anymore if you do that kind of thing. And it all starts with desire and temptation. And then we blame God. God. James says there's a different way to approach all this stuff. He calls us to embrace what I would call spiritual discernment. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. You don't have to be deceived. You don't have to give in to your desires. You don't have to give in to your temptations. In fact, you might want to think about running them through a different filter, the filter of Jesus Christ and the way he thinks about things. Sometimes desires we can't help having. They just are there. But they can turn into temptation. When turn into temptation, we better start thinking, what would Jesus want me to do?" Oxford scholar G.B. Caird writes this about temptation and desire and resistance. To follow Jesus, or to follow his example, turns out to be as popular tradition is held, the higher road, that particular morality which the gospel imposes on the Christian. But such morality does not consist in conformity to any stereotyped pattern. It's not just about following rules. It consists rather in learning from Jesus an attitude of mind which comprises sensitivity to the presence of God. And right there is the key to fighting desires and temptations. Sensitivity to the presence of God and to the will of God, which is the only authority a constant submission of personal interest to the pursuit of that will in the well-being of others, a confidence that whatever the immediate consequences may appear to be, the outcome can safely be left in God's hands. When we have a sensitivity to the presence of God, but if we don't consult God at all, we'll just go our own way, because that's our natural bent. The good news in all of this is Easter, right? God always comes and God chooses and God chooses to give us what James says is a new birth. We're going to be born again. We don't have to live this way. We don't have to simply give up to the evil desires of our hearts and minds because there's another option. And the other option is to live through the power of the Holy Spirit that comes with resurrection. What happens in that cemetery? Mary and Peter and John show up. And the tomb is empty. And Peter and John run home. And Mary can't even do that. She's so grief stricken. She stays in the cemetery. And what happens? Jesus shows up. And Peter and John go and run and hide with the rest of the disciples because they're so afraid that the Jews might kill them. They're hiding behind doors for fear of the Jews. They're afraid. And what happens? Jesus shows up. And Peter is so ridden with guilt and shame because he denied Jesus three times that he's out in a boat trying to figure out how did I ever get here? How, how in the world could I say I never even know who this guy is? What are you talking? How, how do I deny Jesus three times? And in the midst of all that powerful guilt and shame, what happens? Jesus shows up. God always shows up. To filter our desires and temptations. Paul says it this way when he writes to the church at Rome. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness. You've got to serve somebody, so you're either going to listen to the evil whispers of Satan in your ear, or you're going to serve God. These are your choices. It's choice. We all have a choice. It's called free will. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have been slaves to righteousness. We've become servants of God. We want to do it Jesus' way. And when you want to do it Jesus' way, you're not going to walk in the light and the desires and the temptations of Satan. You're going to do it completely differently. One of the interesting things about how our desires are moved towards self-interest is that when Satan comes to tempt you, he doesn't come as a great big monster. He doesn't chase you into a dark corner. He doesn't threaten you with death. Satan, in the Garden of Eden, whispered in Adam and Eve's ear. He was a deceiver and a tempter. we're trying to discern whether this is God's will or Satan's will, we'll just listen to that voice unless we know the voice of Christ. And James says, you can be born differently and listen only to the voice of Christ if you are attuned to it. Let us pray. Lord, your word is convicting. All of us have desires. All of us have given in to self-interest. And so we pray for your forgiveness. And deep down inside, our deepest desire is to serve you and to be like you. And so, oh Lord, we pray that you will use us And allow us to hear your voice above all others. And in so doing, walk in your light and in your way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, Before we continue to worship God with our tithes and offerings, I've got a few announcements I need.